Today's episode is brought to you by Raymond Antrobus's All the Names Given, a collection which opens with poems about the author's surname, one that shouldn't have survived into modernity, and examines the rich and fraught history carried with it. The book is punctuated with caption poems, partially inspired by deaf sound artist Christine Sun Kim, which speaks to the spaces between the poems as well as the moments inside them. As Antrobus outlines a childhood caught between intimacy and brutality, sound and silence, and conflicting racial and cultural identities, the poem becomes a space in which the poet reckons with his own ancestry and bears witness to the indelible violence of the legacy wrought by colonialism. Camon Felix calls the collection brave, tender, and generous, and adds that it manages to caption the speaker's dance with the ghosts of his bloodline, offering us a haunting study on what we can find in the silences of history when history is recognized as more than a noun, when recognized as something alive and kinetic, something constantly in conversation with the present. All the Names Given is out now with Tin House, and I'll add that Raymond Antrobus was the last guest on the show, and I'm confident if you listen to that conversation that this book will be one of the gifts you send to the poetry lovers in your life this holiday season. Today's guest is also a poet, Valerie Mayer Casso, and as has become a tradition on Between the Covers, when a guest appears on the show for their book in translation, in this case Valerie's bilingual edition of Edinburgh Notebook, which came out this year from Action Books, I try to also do a companion interview with the translator themselves. In this case, a conversation with Michelle Hilmontero, who is a translator and also a poet, and also an editor of a press of translations of poetry, a press with a particular focus on hybrid genre works and works that have never before appeared in English translation. In the conversation with Michelle, we talk in depth about her approach to translating Valerie, an approach that unexpectedly for me was influenced by Edmond Jabez and his relationship with his translator, Rosemary Waldrop. But we also talk about translating as creative writing, about her own writing beyond translation, about her studying under C.D. Wright and Forrest Gander, and Michelle also reads some of her own poetry for us. These conversations with translators are usually the most robust additions to the bonus audio archive. Often they are full-length episodes in and of themselves. My conversation with Michelle joins a quite large and growing archive of translation conversations. Ones with Emma Ramadan talking about translating Abdullah Taya, Suzanne Jill Levine talking about translating Christina Rivera Garza, Ellen Elias Bursich talking about Dubravka Ugresic, Sophie Hughes about Fernanda Melchor, and Lee Tui Nguyen translating Dao Strom not into English but into Vietnamese. The bonus audio is only one of the potential benefits of moving from being a listener to a listener supporter of the show. With every episode, 
every supporter gets an email full of resources and references related to the given conversation. Supporters play a big role in helping shape who comes on the show in the future, and there are many other potential rewards that past guests of the show have offered, whether it be consultations on your own writing, rare collectibles, broadsides, unusual chapbooks, artwork made by past guests, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they are available to the general public. But as we launch this last episode of Between the Covers for 2021, as the year turns and we head together into the winter of a new year, perhaps beyond these quote-unquote rewards for becoming a supporter, perhaps you found the show or certain conversations on the show, whether with Jory Graham or Kava Akbar, or Padre Gotuma or Teju Cole or others, perhaps you found them edifying or enlightening or heart-opening in some way. Right now, about one out of every 20 listeners is a supporter. Perhaps if you are one of the other 19, consider as we are about to start anew together in 2022, consider being a part of the Between the Covers community going forward. To find out more, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Valerie Mayer-Casso. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Mexican poet, painter, and translator Valerie Mayer Caso. Mayor Caso is the author of six collections of poetry, including De la Ola el Atajo, Geografías de Niebla y Ante al Ojo de Cíclope. Her book De Elefante a Elefante won the Spanish government's Gerardo Diego International Award. And here in the United States, Action Books has published three bilingual editions of her poetry, including Reign of the Future, translated by C.D. Wright, Forrest Gander, and Alexandra Zellman, with a foreword by the Chilean poet Raul Zurita, and this blue novel, translated by Michelle Hill Montero, 
Mayor Caso's paintings have appeared in Forrest Gander's 2012 book, Ligaduras or Ligatures, in Antonio Prete's Menier and L'Imperfection de la Lune, and her etchings have appeared in Raul Zarita's Los Porteros de la Noche. She's also collaborated with photographers, including Barry Shapiro and Russell Monk, and along with photographer D.S. Boris and poet Forrest Gander, she co-authored Time's Playing Fields, a book that engages with empty football fields in Mexico. She has also translated poets into Spanish, translating several books by Forrest Gander, as well as poetry by Charles Wright, Les Murray, and Pascal Petit, among others. And she's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book to appear in English, her third bilingual collection with action books called Cuaderno de Edimburgo, or Edinburgh Notebook, a poetry collection that is also a book of image text with collages by Valerie herself and photographs by Barry Shapiro, a work translated by Michelle Hill Montero, for which she won a Penheim Award for her translation. Esteban Rodriguez says, For Valerie Mayer Caso, Edinburgh Notebook is a testament to the power of language's ability to heal and to help come close to answering the questions we thought grief would silence us from asking. Written in the wake of her brother Charlie's suicide, Mayor Caso's collection, through honest language and hallucinatory imagery, examines the consequences of uncertainty and sorrow when those we love the most are gone. Alyssa Gabbert says in the New York Times Review, any book about overwhelming grief confronts a problem of language. How do we speak or write about feelings that are, on the one hand, nearly incomprehensible, and on the other, so often reduced to cliché? It's fitting in a way to read about grief in translation. It forces us to contemplate the difficulty of finding original expression. It's as though being one step further removed from what's happening in the mind actually helps us understand it. Mayor Caso's poetry cannot be equal to who is lost, but it can create something out of language that's immortal, both terrible and precious. Carmen Jimenez Smith adds, At its best, a book of poetry can capture the solitary intellectual vexations we have with memory and death, which live at the center of all our reckoning. Edinburgh Notebook is such a book. Valerie Mayer Caso is an exquisite archivist of the evidence we rely on to revisit our histories, stained photographs, bats, and fleeting glimpses, the palimpsests that flitter from gorgeous nocturnes, quote, I'll wreck the piano and the dust of its bones will sound mournful and that possible song will replay like a cannon. I love the haunted library of this book and the cool blue eye that dizzies then writes me with both heart and head. And finally, Raul Zarita says, The language that emerges is one pierced by the world and by our actions in the world. Constructed from the limit of experience, these poems have relinquished all rhetorical temptation, any purely verbal exploration, 
in order to insist on an infinitely more risky investigation, that of capturing the instant just before things turn to shadows. Welcome to Between the Covers, Valerie Mayer Casso. Thank you, baby. When you were at Notre Dame University a while ago to read from Reign of the Future, Johannes Joransson gave a really interesting introduction to you that I thought framed your work in an interesting way. He, he, he talked at first about the American dis, distrust of works in translation, and that's something that I want to return to later with you. But then he moved to discuss his skepticism of the notion of global literature, where we might have an anthology where we'd pick one poet from each country and then call that good, as if the best way a writer could be described is by the borders of their country, as if their culture and language could be delimited by that national border. And he was interested in language and in poets that cross boundaries and that move across language. And instead of a poetry defined by nation, he put forth the notion of the global uncanny, poets who move in the peripheries, who move across boundaries and borders and languages, and poets who might not know themselves what home is and what foreign is. And he felt like your work in particular reflected this, this instability that so appealed to him. And given that your work engages with your own biography and with your own complex family history, one that doesn't fit into the story of a country. I was thinking maybe we could start there. If you could talk to us about home in relation to ancestry, nation, and language. Well, my first contact with poetry was my grandmother was a, from a Spanish descent. And in that generation, the 1900s, um, she was born exactly in the 1900s. Memory was very important, knowing things by heart. So she, it's not that she taught me anything. It was part of their everyday life. Eh, but, no me mueve mi Dios para quererte, el cielo que me tienes prometido. Things of eh, Santa Teresa de Jesús. Eh, sobre todo Sor Juana, the, the first feminist poem. Eh, hombres necios que acusáis a la mujer sin razón sin ver que sois la ocasión de lo mismo que culpáis. But, of course, longer. Sin con ansia, sin igual, solicitáis su desdén porque queréis que obren bien si las necesitáis al mal. Some Dante, which I have in common with, with Zurita, that his grandmother knew most Dante by heart. And because of their poverty and their physical limitations, that, those were the children's stories. In my case, it was just contemplating someone and their habits. And so that, but that was pretty constant together with incredible stories about what happened, how they lost most of what they had in the revolution. They were born in La Calle de Donceles. I don't know if you have ever been in the center of Mexico. I have. Okay. So you've been to the excavation where there's the cathedral and the, okay. so that's the street they were born in and where they grew up, La Calle de Donceles. And when the revolution came, those streets were gated. 
than the stories of the revolution were incredible. So most of my cousins left the table and I stayed thinking, oh my God, these stories are incredible. How they brought a cow to feed all the street or things like that. And later in life, when I had already published this blue novel in Spanish and other books, I was strange from my family for a long time because complicated stories of violence and regained contact with one of my aunts that had an incredible memory. So I, she started saying, oh, these that you wrote must be this object and gave it to me. Or the complete story of what you said was this. And most of these came from immigrants two generations ago for whom it was more or less not so easy to adapt to Mexico. And they create a lot of wealth and then lost it for different reasons. That's why I have that quote from Elliot in this blue novel, the houses are all gone under the sea. So I knew those houses full of objects and incredible things. And also I saw them disappear. And, but my identification of Mexico is profound in an indifferent ways. For example, I live across from a creek that I would love to be able to show you, but maybe we can't. The creek is almost dry, but it can get very full. It comes from the water of a presa and it's full of mud. But right now it's completely crystalline. And then so you can see the frogs, the fishes, and one of my neighbors is a, is a waiter that creates things of metal. And the other one is an American who I never see. <laughs> so, so I identify with the materials of my country. Yeah. I lived in New York for three years. And when I came back, I thought, but it was the materials, the rocks, the thick of the walls, the kindness of people naturally. Well, well, let's let's stay with that identification a, a little longer. So, with your ancestry being, as you mentioned, from Spain, but also from England and Germany, you've talked about how, despite being born in Mexico and your family being there for many generations, no one would look at you and ask, "Are you from here?" Um, that there are ways you are a stranger in your own country. That, for instance, when you went to an English language school, you were the only person who looked like an English language speaker. I can't even know that. <laughs> Just listening to you talk in interviews. Um, but also how, while Spanish is your mother tongue, your, your father spoke to you in English. Um, I wanted to ask you a variation of a question that Forrest Gander asked Raul Zorita when he interviewed, interviewed Zorita in 2012. In Forrest's um, introduction of Zurita, he referred to him as a Chilean poet. But then in their conversation, Forrest wondered if Zurita thinks of the contemporary poets he loves in Latin America in terms of their countries of origin. He noted how many of these poets um, were mobile, not living in their countries of origin. A and I'd also add that in my recent conversation with the Palestinian novelist, Adania Shibli, she says she doesn't think of writers in relation to nation states, but rather for her, what is important is the language that one's writing in, that at least for herself, she's participating in a conversation 
with Arabic literature through Arabic. And I, I, I wondered about these questions for you. Do you think of the work you're doing as being in conversation with other Mexican writers living or from the past, and then by extension with the Mexican literary tradition? Or is, or is there another way you would place yourself, perhaps more broadly in dialogue with Spanish language literature or the Spanish language? Or as Johannes might suggest with the poets of the periphery, the boundary crossers? When I was part of the Biennale of Cochimuchiches in India, I had the incredible opportunity, I hope I can send you an image, to create flags of ima imaginary countries. And together with these flags of imaginary countries, I created poems for those imaginary countries. Of course, they're loosely based on a country. Like, for example, there's two for Chile. <laughs> loosely based. No? But that one and, and another book I wrote about it after Edinburgh, Edinburgh Notebook that is about to come to, in Spain, Sin República, it's very apropos to your question. Uh, which will appear as without republic. And it's not that I feel painfully exiled from my country. It's just that, of course, I read them all, all the great ones, especially in my teen years. Of course, Octavio Paz, most of his essays, Rulfo, many times, uh, and all of them, Aridhis, Pacheco, all their novels, all of that. And I have, I cannot deny I have received three grants from the Mexican government so kindly. But that's very different that once I arrive to the grant, they don't see me and say, what is she doing here? Yes, <laughs> because it, it's more that I love their work, but they don't even identify me as one of them and I don't blame them. Yeah. And, the audiences that I have in Spain are, I don't know how, they're completely aware of my work. And in Mexico, I think I'm almost unknown. So, oh, really? No, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. But you're more okay. known in Spain than in Mexico. Compared to Spain, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, in Spain, it's a real crowd. In Mexico, it's. Oh, that's interesting. That is, for me, it's interesting and it's not unfamiliar. It's also part of my experience of my life here. And, and also I have to acknowledge that most of the poems I heard when I was growing up were Spanish poems. So I don't think it's so accidental. Maybe really the tradition, even when I read all the important Mexican ones, the tradition I grew up when I was little, the things I heard were either English or Spanish. Copla para la muerte de Jorge Manrique. And those are the ones that I incidentally learned by heart. So um, thinking about how an Edinburgh notebook, it, it contains photographs by Barry Shapiro, and it also contains collages by you. Uh, but unlike Reign of the Future and this blue novel, the, these pictures are not of your own family even though the new book, like the others, is also very much engaged with your own family. So even though the material from which your poems arises is often your family history, 
or from your family history. And you've said sometimes you will sit facing one of these family photographs, staring at it as you write. The resulting poems move beyond realism and representation. They become something very different. And this speaks to the question that uh, Forrest Gander has for you. So this is from Forrest. Your work most often has biographical contexts and sources. You write out of your experience what has happened to you. In that sense, your poetry might be said to be grounded in reality or truth-telling, but at the same time, your poems can be dreamy, hermetic, associative, even surreal. How do you think about the tension between those trajectories in your poetics? Forrest has a very specific way that I wish I could remember in an interview I made to him of how there was a conversation, not with one single person, but with a wall of, of interlocutores, of people you're speaking to. You know? So when I was writing this blue novel, I, yes, my ancestry was the main, the main people that I was talking to. Here, in, in, the, in the collaboration with Barry Shapiro, that appears strange, I imagine. Uh, that is dedicated to the death of my cousin Pedro. Uh, you see that it appears photographs, you've seen it, you've seen them. Photographs that are non-related with my family. And, and really this, this is connected with a story in a very specific way with the death of Charlie, but also not connected. It's like, it's like an incident that happened inside of a poem. When my brother, Charlie, this is the biographical. When my brother Charlie died in Edinburgh, I haven't seen him in a long time. And mainly I wonder about his children. And he was affected, disturbed by our childhood. So the last time I saw him was incidental. And then I learned he was in England, learned he was in Edinburgh. And when I learned he died, I received a call from the Scotland Yard. And the kindest person on earth is a member of the Scotland Yard. Can you believe it? So sweet in the way he told me. The same day or day after, being estranged from my family, my cousin Pedro showed up in the town I lived, that went back in San Miguel de Allende. And I thought all of his presence was about Charlie. And he said, no, I just wanted to see you after 20 years. Few years later, he died of a very severe cancer. And Michelle and I had been waiting for the book to come out because of several things that happened with book houses personal tragedy events uh, in action books in that one we wanted to be loyal to, etc. We had the opportunity to have a, an epilogue. And really thought this conversation is not only with him, but he closes that that happened in the sequence of two days. The knowing Charlie died, he reappeared, he disappeared. And suddenly those four years we waited for the book to come out made sense because he was an integral part of the book now. 
And so I asked Barry Shapiro to say, give me your most lonely pictures. And then he sent me a file with this. But you see mostly old people, landscapes, all of that. And I added them as, as one part of the conversation. Naturally, I'm talking to Pedro, to myself. I'm allowing myself to play, to talk also to toys, to converse with more elements in a way like maybe Marosa de Georgia did, but also with the elements of these photographs that encapsulated with me loneliness, solitude in a profound way. Well, I was hoping we could hear three things in reverse order to the way they appear in the book. So the poem, December, 5 p.m., Edinburgh, and then the unnamed prose poem right before it, and then the epigraph right before the prose poem. I know you were going to read December 5 p.m. in English, and then the unnamed prose poem you were going to read in Spanish, and then I'll play the English version of the the unnamed one. Uh, and I'll just say in advance that the, the English participation we're hearing is from uh, the translator, Michelle Hill Montero. So um, she's joining us, and not just in spirit, but her voice will be part of this uh, this reading too. Well, Michelle has been incredible in her participation. This poem, I want to say that one of the authors of this poem is my brother. Because in reality, when I say lucid thoughts, this is his suicidal note. So I felt he has, he never had an opportunity to be seen or participate in his thoughts. And it was a way of making last thoughts, part of something bigger. December, 5 p.m., Edinburgh. His last thoughts, the strange formation of clouds, the window waiting, nothing, nothing, nothing. Or the faces of his boy and girl, lucid thoughts. I'm sorry for causing so much trouble and grief. It is the end of the road to me. If I ever saw myself as a crusader, I'm a fool. Lucid thoughts. I'm going nowhere. I have no prospects in life. I'm sorry. We're true friends. Lucid thoughts. All flesh is like grass. And all this glory like the flower that blooms and withers. I'm dying in shame. In memory of the Bible, which he memorized as a boy, he fell and traced a radiance that siphons time. It is rage or speed as the old man that leaves purple streaks on the once golden fish. Alone from day one, a blonde boy alone waves, staves, and his beloved dog, the chessboard and his never clear victory. Later, when alone, his father blows. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. At the bottom of the pond, peer under its turtle claws, in a soul of murk, a shoal soul. Faces will return from the mountains on snaking roads and stone scars. The fingers of a blonde, perfect boy dig in the dirt, and the murky soul shudders with fear. Now in the foreground, I see 
White dogs racing, pulling away from their masters. All the stars and sunken silver. It pertains to the dead. She sits, she bites herself. She remembers and knows that under the heavy leaves, a giant turtle bathed in still liquid silver will lumber from the pond. And as it tucks its head under the sparkling shell, she who watches astonished will say, this is memory. Then at the heart of the fable, she'll hear, no, look closer, it's your memory. Bajo el estanque, mire el embés de sus patas de tortuga en un alma de lodo, un alma del bajo fondo. Los rostros van a volver de las montañas por caminos sinuosos y cicatrices de piedra. A la tierra entran los dedos del niño rubio perfecto y el alma de lodo palpita de miedo. Ahora veo en primer plano una carrera de perros blancos que tiran de sus dueños. Tantas estrellas y plata sumergida es de los muertos. Ella se sienta, ella se duerme, ella se muerde, ella se acuerda y sabe frente a la fronda copiosa de los árboles que una gran tortuga saldrá del estanque. Bañada en plata aún líquida y mientras oculte la cabeza en el destello de su caparazón, ella que azorada ve dirá, es la memoria. Y en el corazón de la fábula escuchará, the listening to Valerie Mayer Casso and Michelle Hill Montero read from Edinburgh Notebook. Um, and both of these poems we just heard, right before them we get an epigraph from Ernest Hemingway from The Old Men in the Sea that goes, most people are heartless about turtles because a turtle's heart will beat for hours after he has been cut up and butchered. So so in the light of these three things, the this poem you read in English to begin uh, about Charlie's suicide, and then this um, more of a, a fantastical fable that includes a blonde boy, but also includes this turtle, and then this mysterious um, Hemingway epigraph around the turtle's heart beating. I wanted to I wanted to think of those three things as I ask you the next question. So when you were at the Kochi Biennale in 2016 in India, which I was also at coincidentally and very accidentally, um, you spoke about a conversation you had with the Italian writer and critic Antonio Prete where he was talking about the word uncanny in German, how the word for uncanny or the German word for uncanny contains the word for home, but means being at home, but not quite. And then you mention to him Freud's dream where Freud is having breakfast with his family exactly as every other day that he has breakfast except that they're all speaking Japanese. And you say that poetry is like this for you. And I, I was thinking of this notion of, of the uncanny and then a Freud's dream. And, um, and it feels like a good segue into another question from someone else for you. I was talking with poet, translator, and action books editor, Joyelle McSweeney, about your work. 
and she was mentioning the intersection of your poetry with your painting and both your poetry and painting intersecting with the work that you do outside of the world of art and writing and how it all made her think of surrealism much as it makes Forrest think of it too. Um, and she wondered if you yourself would consider your work surreal. Putting this together with, with Mexico, I don't know if you know that, I think Breton in the Dictionnaire of Dictionnaire du Surrealism said that Mexico was a surrealistic country by excellence. Maybe it's just because of the, if you read the manifest, the incidental connection with things, you just have to go out of the street one second and, and there's a scene like that, but it's for real. I feel like when they asked, for example, Isabel Garcia Lorca wrote about the images his brother used in the poems with really revealing everything really happened. The frogs really were under the mob. All of this really actually happened. She goes one image after the other after the other. Well, I love, for example, when I was studying, I love reading Freud because in contrast with what most people that probably never read Freud directly think, he was very inventive, very adventurous, and not at all a terrorist. And he was really trying to ease pain in people, of course, being a, a man of his time. I'm not saying that, but for example, because he was taking care of the thing of the hysteria de conversión where people could not, women could not move their legs. If there was a ball where someone finally was able to dance, he would assist to the ball. And so, yeah, I work coming from many fields, but I think that he can be a big inspiration, especially in the ways he, he went lengths into finding a way to his Spain his concern to his pain or listen to pain. Mm. Well, um, let's listen. Well, let's hear you read and also listen to others read two earlier poems, which, which I was reminded of when, with this discussion of the uncanny in German being home, but not quite. So um, the first one is uncanny number five, which I'll play first in English, and then you can read in Spanish. And this is read by Forrest Gander and was translated by both Forrest and C.D. Wright. Yeah. Uncanny Five, The Gift, by Valerie Meyer Caso. The animal, the old dead animal, fed on newspapers. How could I have known it was me, prehistoric, as I was and blue-eyed. Such was my dream today, and just yesterday I dreamed he, a poet friend, had given me a house, a house drawn on yellowed paper, and at the same time a real house near the sea. Then I had nothing to worry about. I didn't get it. I should have known. I have a house I don't recognize. I'm a prehistoric animal, the whiff of death comes only after my dissection. It's the smell of laundry, of new books. How can I be dead and neither rotting nor stiff? 
Where will they bury a body this large? Where is the house he gave me? I would have replied, but I didn't know the answers. And worse, both times I woke and scribbled urgent letters. It only saddened me. So go the days, made of hours, not of centuries like the night. Heimelich 5. El regalo. El animal, el viejo animal muerto, alimentado de periódicos. ¿Cómo supe que era yo? Prehistórico, como era, tenía los ojos azules. Este fue el sueño de hoy. Apenas en el de ayer, un poeta amigo me había regalado una casa. Una casa dibujada en un papel amarillento y a la vez una casa real en la orilla del mar. Ya no tenía que inquietarme por nada. Yo no lo sabía. Debería de saberlo. Tengo una casa que no conozco. Soy un animal prehistórico. Y ante las disecciones no hay olor a muerto. Huele a cajones con ropa lavada, a libros nuevos. ¿Cómo es que estoy muerta y que no hay pestilencia ni rigidez? ¿Dónde van a enterrar un cuerpo tan grande? ¿Dónde queda la casa que resulta ser mía y que él me regaló? Yo hubiera querido contestar, pero no conocía las respuestas. Y además, ambas veces desperté y escribí cartas urgentes y me entristecí. Así son los días. Son de horas. No de siglos como la noche. Parenthesis. Nothing's in the nest. No needles. No newborn ravens. Maybe something like night in the deep hollow. An actual planet. Cracked in the middle. An empty bowl of soup. Nothing's in the nest. No thread. No web of words. Maybe something like my navel. The clips of magnify of a magnifying glass, a slice, nude with regard to its empty depths. In the nest, nothing. The web unwoven, dismembered. In the space, something, yes, a piece of cloth. Sounding like flax taking wing, a worm on its beak, and suddenly eyes, my eyes, with cutting across the emptier direct themselves at something noiseless over there. We've been listening to both Valerie Mayer Casso and Forrest Gander read Valerie's poems from Rain, in the Fu- Rain of the Future. Um, I want to just interrupt it to say thank you to Forrest. When I hear how, boy, how Forrest is reading in English and how he also devoted so much of his time to translate me and he reads me so well, I'm like, I feel intimidated reading myself in English. <laughs> you sound you sound great in, in reading yourself in English. It's nice to hear you and Michelle and Forrest all reading your work in English to hear the different ways it's it's sounding. You can convey it in so many ways, no? Yeah. 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 Um, well, I want to return to the first three things we read. When I, I read the epigraph from Hemingway. And then Michelle read the um, that strange, almost fable that includes your brother and a turtle, and then you read the the poem about Charlie's suicide. I I wanted to um, ask you about the presence of 
sea creatures and Hemingway as they re- reoccur through the Edinburgh Notebook. The opening epigraph to the book is also from The Old Man and the Sea. So the one that I read earlier, most people are heartless about turtles because a turtle's heart will beat for hours after he's been cut up and butchered. But the opening epigraph, the fish is my friend too, he said aloud. I've never seen or heard of such a fish, but I must kill him. I'm glad we do not have to try to kill the stars. And then again, Hemingway at the opening of your poem, the creature that goes, he lay in the stern in the sun, compact and bullet-shaped, his big, unintelligent eyes staring as he thumped his life out against the planking of the boat. Talk, talk to us about these non-human creatures beyond language and, and also about how... Or, or why, or to what end Hemingway enters um, Edinburgh Notebook? So I, I grew up going to the tropic a lot because my German grandfather had, among all his wealth, five houses in Acapulco. Acapulco is surrealistic by itself. There is this incredible cliff that divers go in and they have such a narrow space and it's like, I don't know, representations of potential suicide. And one of these, these buitres, I don't know how you say buitres in, in Spanish, the, the birds that eat dead bodies. I wrote a poem about that, that one day I was on the roof trying to get away from everything. And then a bull, one of those buitres came flying really slowly. And then we had the chance to see each other eye to eye. So all of these were images and actually things that happened that had to do with fear. But in the ro- on the roads and also in the roads to the Ruta Maya, to the southeast of Mexico, you often find uh, turned up uh, upside down turtles that nobody will ever, unless they stop the car and they have the kindness to turn them around, they're left there in the middle of a road uh, with... And that, that was very powerful for me. And when I was a child, I was an avid reader and I read The Old Man and the Sea, not in this version. This version, when I was living in Brooklyn, it was for $1 on the street. So I got it. And it has all the original drawings of The Old Man and the Sea. Mm. And then I found, I found the turtle again. And not only the turtle, there's one, one of the not even an epigraph. I think Michelle mentions in the end that is part of the book, but in December, 5 p.m., there's one of the lines that is from Hemingway, one of the lines that I got inside. That is, and trace a radiance that Siphon's time, it is raged or Steve asked the old man that leaves purple streaks and the golden fish. So that's an imported Hemingway line within your poem. It's an imported one. Yeah. yeah. And and then yes, I was thinking of, of that moment when he he's hunting the fish, and then in that moment when he's about to die, his colors are transformed. So it's a book I went over and over again. And in the moment that my brother died, resonated 
with me enormously. And I, as a form of consolation, I read it again and again and again. And somehow he started being so together with the turtles and the fish. And, and often I have talked here and there about my father as a hunter, el cazador, in some of the poems. I guess this is like more like a childhood in Texas, but we, we made, made a trip to Texas when I was around 12. That appears in, the, in this little novel that says Texas, this planet that was translated by Michelle. And it was a trip to buy guns, of all things. To buy guns. Well, I mean, buy guns. Yeah. Guns, rifles. And it's one of those paradoxical things because he had a very sophisticated education. He could sing opera. He could play the piano. He read. So someday he gave up all reference of civilization and he became someone that was just interested in guns and rifles. So I remember that trip as a terrifying one. And there is also something terrifying in the old man and the sea. Even when a Hemingway portrays it as dignified, the old man goes back and this is his antagonist, but both of them are heroes and worthy of something, which I would like to think of my brother as that. There's also the image of a hunter. So there's a recurring motif in all of your books of, of blueness and the color blue. And there's many ways we could think of this recurring motif. One being the ocean, the sea, the place where, from which we extract these creatures that we don't understand and murder them, even as their hearts continue to beat after their deaths. Um, or the way C.D. Wright spoke of your work when she translated it the sensation is of drowning. The effort is toward ascent. So the sense of both water, death, and attempt back toward the sky. Um, but blue goes beyond this, I think. We, we get blue intelligence, bluish light, bluish dove, wounded in blue, blue canary. In life, they were blue and piercing. And the line from Uncanny Number 5 prehistoric as I was, and blue-eyed. When I think of blue, not only in, in let's say, the most obviously the title, this blue novel, I, I, I think of, of sadness in English when I think of the word blue, to be blue, but I also think of blue eyes as the marker of not belonging, as the visible marker of someone being other, perhaps in Mexico, um, like this line in this blue novel, a bevy of blue eyes open and close from end to end in the architecture of his back, heart to femur, femur to mane, he's all eyelids. And I guess I wondered if it would be too reductive to connect any sense of otherness that you experience to these creatures with blue eyes along their backs or, or creatures with hearts beating beyond death. Um, but either way, talk to us about blue and blueness, <laughs> um, which, which goes through your work so much. I know. I, as an aftermath, I ended up 
finding incredible poems. Well, especially that one, the one of that moment in Gorostiza, but especially the one of Jean-Michel Montpoint, where he is completely devoted to blue, but that's an aftermath. The rest of the things I want to say, they were really blue. When I was in that house in Acapulco, where most tragedies had happened, like in Denumont, where the Christmas tree flies three stories down. Everything that surrounded us was the ocean. And there's something in, in Mexico called La Hora Azul. I don't know if you've had that in the States, the blue hour. Mm -hmm. But it's several hours, I would say like an hour and a half, maybe I experienced it like that, where it's an intense cobalt blue. So that most of my relatives, especially the older ones, the storytellers have blue eyes. My daughter's canary was really blue. <laughs> and I don't, know else, I don't know what else I said it was blue, but I'm looking at a blue vase that has 150 years old. That was a present to my great-grandparents. And it's an incident that all of these things were blue because naturally I'm influenced by other cults. But we can say that by accident, I was surrounded by this color in the, in the power of her eyes, but also in the incident around. And then when I decided to call this blue novel, it was just by force of accumulation. There was so many, so much blue. And I was definitely not thinking of the reference in English of how or how it could be translated. Yeah. It, it gains a different, another meaning in English when it's exactly, in That's English. the great thing about translation, that it adds something. The only great book that we can reference that has the word blue as a title is Ruben Darío, Azul. Mm. And I think it, they say, that the ones that know this, that it marks modernism. Mm. But, but in Mexico, there's so many Incredible blue things. I don't know if you've ever been to the Lagunas Bacalash. It's one lagoon after the other, after the other. It's a great sequence of lagoons. They're all from a different quality of blue. You feel truly that you're inside of you're in paradise. Inside of? In paradise. Yeah. Like one of those images. All the oceans have different matices, different qualities. And... And the streets are covered by blue houses. And so it's more that. It's more that that started coming in naturally. And then I was able to recognize the accumulation of that. And then in the translation into English, it added the element of sorrow that naturally, unfortunately, my work is completely packed by. Like, like it says in the review of the New York Times that she was so kind to say, well, I picked this one because it, I'm in the mood of sad books. No? Well, you, you wrote a series of prose pieces for the Poetry Foundation website years ago now. In, in one of them, you're recounting going to South Korea to meet the poet Kim Hyesoon for a meal. But it too becomes surreal, your recounting. Mm -hmm. um, it's unclear what happened and what did not 
perhaps like your blue can your daughter's blue canary. We don't know whether the canary is really blue and it, it turns out really being blue. But um but in this meeting in South Korea, um there's ghosts of the dead visiting and when Kim Hai Soon arrives, she's answering anything asked to her with lines of her own poems. So um it feels very much like we're in a fantastical space in your in your story of this moment. And perhaps the most uncanny part of Edinburgh Notebook is a, is a short section where we get three of your collages. And um, I have a que- another question for you, um, this one from Don Miche, the poet and translator and now um, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. And she said she would love to hear you talk about the one drawing photo collage and the two painting collages you created. So these three collages, she says, what struck me was the small child appearing in the photo, then quote, a woman Japanese appearing, riding the crocodile. The child is also with an animal dash human. I would like to hear Valerie talk about the animals horse, human, crocodile, turtle in relation to the poems that she placed in between these collages? Oh, my captain. I call her my captain. I don't know. <laughs> because she gives, she, she saved my life once. I was super sick and gave me tons of instructions. From there on, that was the first day, I call her my captain. <laughs> and for her, I'm so proud of her. Look, what, it's also incidental. Look, I was surviving the death of my brother and I was in the Museum of Santa Barbara in California with my then young daughter and my niece. And I found this postcard of of this woman riding the crocodile. And, And I was also, I think, in the verge of losing my marriage that is also in the book, finding out this monumental truth of a double life that happened for a long time. So she, this, the image was inspiring of survival. And then I thought it was a she, and that she was really like, you know, when you're in Santa Barbara, you see a lot of surfers, their boards, and suddenly seeing someone surfing an animal. It makes you feel like life is an animal. You tame or not tame that. You find a way to stand up on it and, and mostly tame it and survive it somehow. Of course, I was not thinking that far. And collage is one of the most significant mediums I work in. So I think I made the collage first and then from the collage, the events became even more serious. And then they gave me the opportunity to talk about that. Hmm. But in Espanol, animal contains also the word anima. It's contradictory because we think of animal as instincts and anima as a soul. The great thing about poetry is that we don't have to resolve that contradiction. We just have to present it. Hmm. There is a contradiction here brought by the language. And by the images in this case. And by the images. So I integrated her 
as an inspiration. And of course, Michelle Gil Montero that researches everything found out that the image that I got into the collage thinking it was a woman and with whom I identify, it ended up being a man. And she was gonna put it in the book. I don't know if she did or not. Clarifying that, mm. the reference, yeah. it really was a man. In the other one where I'm young, I'm looking at the Christmas tree and I'm seeing the creature. Just a collage I made this spontaneously. And I think it, I did it before I wrote the poem or long before. I have very few pictures of my childhood because of the nature in which I left my home. So I have very few and never recovered anyone. I left and never came back. So, and naturally the creature, in a sense you could say it was in that moment was the death of my brother. One of the things that happens when somebody commits suicide, or I don't know if everywhere in the world, but in Edinburgh, to whom I'm so grateful, but that's the police procedure, is that they keep the body for a few days. And when you're on the other side of the world, you know that your brother is in a refrigerator. That has that created a, one of the most particular form of pains I ever had to go through. Um, and made me understand many things that Surita writes when los que no tienen sepultura, the ones that have, haven't found, you know how he writes about las fosas comunes, bodies, bodies that were thrown from the sky and many things that he had to witness that he has told me very few of them because once he tells you one, then he's quiet like for 10 minutes. And I understand. So for me, everything is more individual. And the book itself was in a way, I found the resources in these animals, in these images to give a grave to my brother and wrote many of them while he was not having a grave and while he was in a, in a refrigerator. Well, let's, let's hear the two poems that, reside among these collages that Dami is referring to. Um, you were going to read Riding the Crocodile in English, and then Michelle's going to read In White in English, and then we'll hear you read In White in Spanish. Riding the Crocodile. This is my fresh blood, their bodies. My husband entering her, cloaks her, thickens her, and does her hair, her mouth. I howl through the halls of their new house. By my daughter and her headless mother buy two tickets to the apocalypse. A crocodile ferries a woman over the waves. It is a painting by Kobayashi Kiyoshika. One of my sentences taps an atmospheric peak, rises to that godless night where dogs gnaw butterflies in repose. Calm down, my God. Unlock your jaw and blow, botch the clouds, botch the waves. So we reach the beach, so our bleeding clots, or let it dissolve in the ocean dusk. So in a future window, an old woman can forget. In white, the turtle looked dead. 
overturned on the road, cradled in its shell. It looked struck. In its oval, a sepia heart worked the pulley of duration. I've thought of it, its memory, its prehistoric eyes. The water is gray in Kobayashi Kiyochika's painting, and a woman, Japanese, mounts the waves. She's brave, shockingly white. The sea nears the shore where the turtle seems to beat weakly. Memory, all its drownings, cold in that ellipse. No one should think of the moon now, but it's too late to warn them. The poem takes place on the night of her bravery, and her face is practically a page. I'd forgotten it all, out of death and sorrow. En blanco. La tortuga parecía muerta, volcada sobre el camino, la cuna su caparazón. La tortuga parecía afligida. Dentro de su óvalo, un corazón sepia jalaba la polea de la duración. He pensado en ella, en la memoria, en sus ojos prehistóricos. El agua es gris en la pintura de Kobayashi Kiyoshika, y ella, la japonesa, va montada sobre las olas. Ella, brava, asombrosamente blanca. El mar se va acercando a esa orilla donde la tortuga parece latir apenas. La memoria con todos sus ahogos reunidos en esa elipse. Nadie debería de pensar en la luna ahora, pero es tarde ya para dar aviso. El poema ocurre en la noche de la valiente y su cara es casi una página. Yo he olvidado todo por la muerte y la tristeza. been listening to Valerie Mayer Caso and Michelle Hill Montero read from Edinburgh Notebook. Um, one of the elements of your, your books, Valerie, that is often mentioned is the way you engage with time. And I think the way you engage with time is part of how you create an unsettling, uncanny atmosphere. The new book has a section called Before is Forever, in the poem that you read earlier, Uncanny Number Five, there's the line, prehistoric as I was. And in Elisa Gabbert's review of your book, she says, if grief warps language, it also warps time and therefore reality. And the poem from the mountain begins, its pages tear or are torn or they are not pages but wings the landscape is a woman dying. I read it because I suffer. It makes sense. These quote-unquote pages, says Gabbert, seem to belong to her brother's notebook, a journal found after his death at a hostel in Edinburgh, as well as to the book we are now reading, a book called Edinburgh Notebook. The pages of the journal and the poem both offer passage to the past, and yet, quote, to return would mean that no time has passed, that nothing happened, but yes, it did happen. The paradox is possible because the quote-unquote landscape of the poem is outside time. She then goes on to talk about how the tenses in your poems get confused. Much as memory tends to blur into the present, and the and in your poems, the past seems to know the future. 
So talk, talk to us about time in this light. Well, first, I appreciate so much all of that, how she went into that, in depth into that, and, and also into Michelle's work, which is so great. She paid attention to that. I remember, I remember reading a French book years ago, a book by a Frenchman. It's going to come to my mind, I promise. Who is Acrocus? Michel Leris? I'm not sure. But he describes something that in, they do in China that to, in a palace, to, to understand the passage of time, they keep someone walking across a room. I don't know how to do it. Or they're really keeping this man always walking so he could sustain the passage of time. And the, and the seasons. Historias del tiempo, des histoires de temps. I'm not sure if that really happens or not. But I took it as a truth. And, and then that sense that you can walk forward or in reverse. Because these walks, you do it in the writing, where hopefully you have. There's a constriction because once you start with words, the words constrict how far you can move, but you're moving in time and you're moving in the space, no? Yeah. Time as landscape in a way. Time as landscape. Like when Zurita, that he blends in, he blends the sky and the, and the sea. In, in that sense, he's such a big inspiration because in reality, he does whatever he wants with that, you know? But in, in time, let's say, in time, there are tragic events that are, are recurrent. So as much as you want to leave behind, you, you truly can't. Well, you've, you've quoted before the line by Pacheco that you learned from Zarita, the past is a foreign country the people there do strange things, which I think is so great. If you could see the context where he told me that, it's super funny because it's always, when we're trying to explain ourselves, the behavior of someone, he comes up with that quote. El tiempo es un país extranjero. La gente hace cosas raras. <laughs> yeah, you're making sense of that. You're making sense of the context, but it's also you're haunted by that and it's coming back. And I would say I'm a person that accepts that. That, that life will proceed by accumulation and that these tremendous waves will come back. Mm. And I'm in my work, I'm not expecting them to go away. So so that's part of the notion of, of time and, and just the ambition to crystallize it in a given moment and to not know everything. Like in this blue novel, I, it was strange for my family, so I couldn't verify many, many of the things I said. They were verified later. But the kind of what is called the ellipses, it's okay if you don't know everything. Those blank spaces will be filled somehow and in the end the truth is not it's relatively not so important 
on the contrary, it can work against you when you're writing. And what else can I say about time? One thing that is important, that is a personal experience that I never told. I have an uncle that was a melomano. You know what a melomano is? Um, music listener. That's what he did with his life. The father that was a significant man in, that came from Spain that founded hospitals, schools, railroads, all of that, died alone in Veracruz. That is portrayed in the poem 1900. So his children, as, as they grew up and became adults, they got together just to remember their father under his, under his portrait, a painting. So for me, it was like a presence that never left and was always referred to. And they say he died saying, pobres de mis hijos, my poor children. And really they live from the incredible strength and all of that, but they live locked in a house. That's what happens in this novel, just retelling those stories. So for a child that grew up like that, it's what is time. It's completely full stop. And then somehow I think that is translated into life. Well, let me ask you another question about time in this light too. Um, because in a conversation you were having about this blue novel for the um, Letras Latinas blog, you were asked about how you visualized time in the scope of your book. And you brought up two things. And I, I want to bring them up now to see if they spark further thought for you. So in your answer then, you quoted a line from the Forrest Gander novel, As a Friend. Um, and that quote is, time is what the stars shine through. And the other thing you brought up is a book by the filmmaker Tarkovsky that you called one of the most important books of your life, at least at the time, which is called... It's true. Looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Sculpting in Time. Yeah. Which you said seemed more about how poetry works than any theories that you've read directly addressing poetry. Because his book, even though his father was a poet, um, was not about poetry, this book, Sculpting Time. And interestingly, given our discussion of the ocean, you said, I think it is a way of flooding. I think it is a way of tackling how life, like cinema, occurs in a medium, time, which we're ignorant of. And, and Zarita himself says Tarkovsky's conception of film as a sculpture in time would apply to your poetry as well. So I'm, I'm curious if rehearing the Gander quote or rehearing your response to the Tarkovsky book, if that brings up any or sparks any more thoughts on time for you. I was telling you about the melomano, my uncle, yeah. and I didn't finish telling you. Because he was a melomano, and he spent from 12 to 2 before, before Laura de Comer, before lunch, he, he listened to a whole opera. And he would let you stay in the room if you were still and not bother him. This was a gigantic room that was devoted just for the single purpose of listening to an opera. 
when you really immerse yourself in just listening for a couple of hours to a whole piece of work, you have this sense of, if I could only be the witness of my own life, like you witness an opera with all these tragedies, I would really experience the expansion of time. But it's because of tragedy, and this is something I have written to Surita often, is when we talk about tragedy, the tragedies that we hear that happen and all that, we say, it's dolor menos tiempo. It's pain with time subtracted from that. Like in the story of Romeo and Juliet, when, when when the letters are coming, one of the things that happened is that there's a misunderstanding happening because there was not enough time for them to communicate. And that ends up in a tragedy. Or just in terms of physics, when there's a crash between cars, you needed a little bit of more time. Unless you're listening to the opera of your own life, and then time is preventing tragedy and it's expanding. But these are little theories that I started developing when I was forced to not say anything and just listen. Mm. <laughs> and I guess they developed in my work and in my reflection of time. But as you can see, they're less philosophical than concrete. And I think I would be a terrible philosopher. <laughs> but sitting in that room, if you're quiet, um, for the several hours of listening to your relative listen to an opera, it does make me think of certain scenes in Tarkovsky films, which feel more like durational time than representational time. Like even though the scene might seem, might only be, let's say nine minutes long, those nine minutes feel very expanded in one of those films where they feel like you're experiencing the real nine minutes not the representation of nine minutes, but those nine minutes might feel like 30 minutes sometimes. Totally. And that's the films that people are not watching now because they're so want something so instantaneous. Now I'm so grateful. I didn't have that kind of a bringing. Also there's experience of time in the midst of tragedy or pain that feels so compact. Yeah. So, that you say in English, momentous. So, momentous, momentous. yeah. Let's stay with Raul Zurita some more um, around questions of language and relationship to grief and death. Um, so I'm going to again return to Forrest Gander's interview of Raul Zurita. In that interview, Zurita said, poetry exists before writing. Poetry is birthed with the birth of the human. Surely at the moment when someone realized that the person who was next to him was going to die and that that would happen to him as well, at that moment, that person understands death and then they must immediately develop an answer. That is the first poem. And since we are made of the same elements, that stars are made of, the human, death, poetry, that is what we are made of. 
And you've quoted others in ways that resonate with this uh, notion of Zaritas, I think. You've quoted Octavio Paz from his book, Pasado and Claro, where he says, in my house, the dead were more than the living. And Gloria Gervitz writing about her mother in Migraciones. She is real only to the point where I can imagine her. In that spirit, I wanted to talk to you about how you imagine into grief and death through language and poetry. Your, your translator, Michelle, um, who's been so great at participating today, and we're going to also have a separate conversation about her relationship to Edinburgh Notebook and her translation of it. She's written quite a bit about her process of translating you. To prepare for translating this book, she chased down the references from Hemingway and references from Pound and from Camus and Duras. But she said it was the epigraph to the section called Movements in your book by Edmond Jabez that was the key for her to understanding how to enter your writing and then to translate your writing. Um, and that reading, that reading Jabez for her and reading more Jabez for her and then also reading his translator, Rosemary Waldrop, about him, all of this was part of the key to unlocking your writing in a sense. And that epigraph she's referring to is all shattered writing has the form of a key. And Hill Montero says, understanding this section of the book, Movements, that begins with this, as shattered writing, helped her to understand the rest of the book. And this notion of Jabez, um, it makes me think of his response to Adorno when Adorno said, to write after Auschwitz is barbaric, and then Jabez replied, after Auschwitz, we must write poetry, but with wounded words. <clears throat> so thinking of Zarita's answer to Gander, of poetry existing before writing, and it's our first answer to death, and then your, your translator's way into your work through this notion of Jabez's shattered shattered writing or wounded words. T talk to us about writing into death or, or what shattered writing or wounded words mean to you in doing so. Well, I think that what he's saying, of course, is so like always in Surita, not so, not only so brilliant, but so true. I'm thinking of experiences that he had of death, like when he was, Two years and a half, his father died. And, but then they left somehow in this house, the, the photograph of the father and the, and the grandmother, the mother went working and the grandmother was supposed to raise them. So when, when they were behaving poorly, they, she sent them, he and Ana Maria, to the, for, to the portrait to be scolded. And then when they were good, he sent them to the portrait to be congratulated. Mm. And just like that, in, 
in itself, it took the development of that to become writing. But that was already poetry. And we're talking about one of the lives that is so specifically poetic that had all the ingredients for him becoming the incredible poet he was. But the thing about death is that was what marked him. Someone with his same name died. Robert, uh, Raul Zurita in Ostrosa. But then he had an additional name that he didn't share because he's Raul Zurita Canessa. So it's the same. Did I die? It's the same name, but now I have an additional name. And then he's taken when he's five, I think by a nanny, not by Belly, the grandmother, to watch one of the first Fellini movies. What, his first movie ever is five, but I don't know if it's one of the early Fellini's movies. The one where is the circus. Do you remember? La Strada. Yeah, La Strada. La Strada. So there is this Anthony Quinn, which I think it's Mexican, integrated is Sampanola, the image of Sampanola torturing um, the poor, the wife of Fellini, the, this poor woman that is so full of life. And all those events and the way we chain them, I think they're originally poetry, especially if we're crossed by death. I remember one when I great aunt of mine died, they didn't notice that I was in the room. Not in my family, they were very protective of children and they would say, oh no, this is not an appropriate experience for a child, let's her go. They would let me in. But I remember the moment, I don't know if you know this, that there's a rictus in that people where they suddenly sit down. They can move, even being dead, they can, they can have movement. And I remember that shaping the, is she dead? And it was such an important death for the family because he, she was like the saint of the family, the one that looked after everyone. And the sorrow was monumental and suddenly she was not dead. So I just wanted to say to the first part of your question and Zurita's affirmation, yes, I agree, poetry precedes writing. But then there was a second part of your question. Remind me. So this notion of Edmond Jabez that opens your movements uh, series, um, which felt like the way in for uh, Gil Montero to translate you, um, this notion of shattered writing and wounded words. And also his answer to, to this thing of Auschwitz and his affirmation and all of that. Look, this is coincidental with my getting to know Antonio Prete. I, I don't know if you know that, but Prete is one of the biggest translators in, of Javé into Italian. Oh, I didn't know that. And they were really close friends. So I have this Libro de las Preguntas very close to me, and it's a, it's a gift he gave me. And, and the way he worked with, with thinking and with essays and all of that was what is this images of Baudelaire, a procedure of Baudelaire to develop images had to do with poetry. And unfortunately, I cannot remember exactly the word he used. So we call it shattered writing and I have heard other people call it shattered writing, but really when I received the Edinburgh notebook, I reread it again last night because I just got it. 
unfortunately. We say in Spanish, en casa del herrero cucharón de palo. That means the house of the iron man, the spoon is made of wood. So too late, I got myself this. And I read it again and I said, I guess this is shadow writing for other people. For me, it's the progression of, of one story. It's like, for me, it's like one novel of that lasts one page. And if you can grab with your face suddenly everything that happened in your life. And it, it's called movements because it's everything that happened in your life with in a certain direction. And then you move to a different direction or to a moving direction. And all of them, all of these I wrote in Brooklyn. And it was really a moment in which I was thinking. Thinking in this way. I don't know, this is something that is in the Bible, that is also in the book, where, where there's the image, of course, of Jesus or whatever, but there is, instead of him saying that he loves with all his heart, he's saying he loves with all his mind. Once that he's in Bethania, that image struck me incredibly. And also, and it's also a quote in the book, in the Bible, when, when you end the, the Old Testament before you start the first, the New Testament, there's a part that is almost impossible to understand that is about substitution. And you've seen that is a big part of my work, how the, the moon will be substituted by a coin and all of that. And then the last thing they say in the Old Testament is all about sounds substituting themselves. And I think it's one of the epigraphs in in Pani Tiempo or something like that. Mm. So I think one of my understandings of time, of poetry and all of that is in there, in the mechanism of repetition, substitution, all of that resembling the nature of encapsulated life. You know? Yeah. Well, can we hear... Um one of the movements we had we had talked about um, perhaps the fifth movement um, in Michelle's translation fifth movement the sermon the not broken phosphorescent expanse it happened years ago we had crossed the avenues in their sweltering silver burn our feet by the time I said tell me if you're naked Tell me if you've been born yet. Tell me if the navel that bound you sheltered under the earth. The blue canary of my daughter fell at our feet, weighing the same as an apple, and we couldn't revive the bird. You mutter in my ear, and though you're close, your voice is an echo. To give life is to ignite torment. That's what you tell me. I follow you to the woods. The cars pick up speed. By now, no more than satellites in orbit. New sprung trees around us like the walls of a house. You are present in the deer that shows itself and retreats. 
the shining like dolls under a huge cloud, that is you. You despair, you explode, and finally you stand there and speak from where you are. You come from nearby, from your own throat, from your breath is a temperate wind. The deer mount a small hill. You chalk a stone into the lake, a swan scattered like crude women before a naked body. Your heart beats in swelling circles around the woods, in the neighbors' houses and at the border of the waves, in the fossy hotels. The mirrors have tiny fissures, maybe imperceptible, that nonetheless advance like cracks. And because you are alive, this brilliance swells in your mortal eyes, the brilliance of getting to know that sorrow. Been listening to Valerie Mayer Casa read from Edinburgh Notebook. So I want to return to Johannes Jorensen's introduction from many years ago. He began that introduction of your reading with the American distrust of translation. He felt like it was it was based on the presumption that the poem written in its original language is best read by an ideal reader who is fluent in that language and has a stable sense of self within a well-defined group identity and that that ideal reader has a perfect understanding of their own language that they're fluent in. And he was skeptical of all of this notion of a perfect understanding of any language, whether you're fluent or not, or of an ideal reader, or that even that an ideal reader would be defined by their relationship to their fluency of a language or even that an ideal reader would necessarily come from the same country as the writer. And that brings me to a question from Elisa Gabbert to you. Oh, <laughs> that, that points to a very different orientation to language and languages in your work. She says, I found many instances in Edinburgh Notebook of what I started thinking of as quote-unquote useful misreadings, places where the context or subject matter of the larger poem primed me to see words and meanings that weren't quite there, but almost there. For example, in the poem Quicksand, I first read, I race across the sheet as I race across the street. In the poem Third, I read Spurious Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, as Spurious Morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And I'm curious about the origin of these blips, which feel like a kind of cross-linguistic pun. Did they emerge organically in translation as pure serendipity or were they snuck in with intention like booby traps were there similar moments in the spanish originals that could not be directly translated and and how did you and michelle collaborate on these mirage-like extra textual meanings if indeed you you agree that they're there in the first place wow what a question well, I'm trying to think how um, 
how I think in that moment. As you have seen, I'm anchored in something that actually happened. Kind of Jaime Gil de Viedma, the Catalan poet, in a different way. So, but I think that because I was bilingual, Maybe there's a background if, of my mind where, where I'm thinking of duelo. I know it's morning, and it will it could be morning of grief and morning of morning. So I leave that question to myself. If I'm really not thinking in two languages and writing in Spanish, but but it's more. I think that's more Michelle's work, and Michelle works in this very thorough way that impressed me always. That is. She has two children, a full job. She writes her own books. She translates also Maria Negroni. You would say, how would she hide five minutes for me? But <laughs> she does. She yeah. does. So, and, and she teaches and she runs a press and all of that. So I think there was a specific year. And I think one of her son, I think her son was sick or this is a different book. I don't remember. But I gave her a book, and for her a whole year, I didn't hear about Michelle. So I assumed she didn't translate the book, and it's fine. So suddenly she writes me with the whole book and all the questions. Mm. Very different from what Forrest would do that. If he translates one poem, he has many questions of that one, and more in momentous, more as he's doing it. And then by then she has researched everything. She's had researched all the references and all of that. And it's more, I think she wanted to create a, a resonance of language that would open other doors as I created it in Spanish, but not in the same way. And is your fluency in English, does that create a desire in you to be very actively involved in the translations into English? Well, with people like Forrest and Michelle, you you can try, but you they already made a very developed work. For example, the only thing that I could point out to Michelle when she translated this novel is that things were more specific. If it was a he, it was a he. You know the gender problem that we have he and she in Spanish, and we don't we don't in English, and it's not. A general spoon is this spoon. Because everything came from very specific circumstances. So that's the only thing we worked on. And more than anything, I replied to her questions. But I think this is the question. Her question is, did I intentionally think of expanding this? I think it's more something Michelle thought of. Of how close this language was, and and that's the goal of, not the goal, but that's what happens in poetry. One sentence is happening in five levels. It's like you in poetry, you're going in a elevator, going up and down in yeah. all the rhythms and spaces in your mind, ideally. And that happens through the polysemic quality of a word. Yeah? But it, it, it's her merit, not mine, definitely. Well, let's, um, let's talk before we end also about the postscript. You've, you've already mentioned it to some degree, 
your collaboration with Barry Shapiro and his images. And as you've mentioned, images that often don't include humans, but include evidence of humans. Or if they include a human, they include a solitary figure. Um, then I'm also thinking about one of your relatives, your, your Spanish grandmother, who you mentioned throughout your books uh, would copy Goya's. Um, and so she would repaint uh, Goya's. And your own collages also, uh, which we've talked about. And then the last line in, in the book before the postscript section, which is, my country, a sad painting. Um, I guess if I wondered if anything, uh, if anything comes to mind about your return to the image, not just your imagistic writing, but the importance of your writing existing next to and in conversation with image. It's come up a lot today, but, um, but it also feels like the book really at the end becomes that side by side of you next to Shapiro's images, um, which isn't just a juxtaposition. You, you can feel the resonance between what you're writing and, and what he's portraying in, in these poems too. But um, talk to us about this postscript in that light. Well, the postscript is kind of like the postscript that is also in this blue novel that when it got the time to make an edition in English, something else happened. In the postscript in this novel, by the time I was able to, to have it in English, my aunt that clarified all the gaps that I had um, was alive about to die and connected to an oxygen tank. And I was able to clarify many things with her. In this one, as I said before, the person that show up the same time that the same day that Charlie died left very soon before we were going to publish the book. And then Barry gave, I asked for Barry or for, for Fotos Solitarias. You know, I don't know if in English, but in Spanish, there's a tradition of Las Soledades, the sort, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know what I don't know what you call solidades in English. Well, but they sound like entities, no? It's like like la soledad se puede convertir es una entidad. It's it's a subject. Como la muerte y las muertes is the death and the deaths. But for us, if it becomes the deaths, it's actually entities. I don't think I was thinking of something so complex, but I wanted to be in conversation with something else to be able to convey this grief. And because versus what happened with Charlie, Pedro encapsulated everything that was intelligent and civilized and um, witty and all of that. And suddenly he was gone, ravaged by cancer. So, so that was the other, um, the cover of that coffin. Well, that, that last section, it begins with an epigraph by Camus, translated by Michelle, that goes, In this union of ruins and spring, 
the ruins have turned back to stone and losing the sheen imposed on them by man, they have returned to nature. And um, I was thinking we could maybe end today with a couple of poems from this image text section. Um, one about Pedro, uh, you just mentioned, Pedro, two chairs and a slide. One of the things that I want to mention about Camus is that he, this is the book that he wrote when he returned to, um, you say, Algeria, Algeria? Algeria. To his native land, and he wrote it in the form of, mem it's a memoir yeah. of, of returning. And I guess I was thinking of dying as returning. As I understand, that's very Catholic, but what can I do? <laughs> so, so what? which one do you want me to read? Um, Pedro, two chairs and a slide. And then, um, so if you would read that in English, and then we'll play um, Michelle reading Crosses, and then we can finish with you reading the Spanish of Crosses. Pedro, two chairs and a slide. A while back in a photograph, I saw your face from last December. Looking at you, it's clear that you would revisit those places where nobody ever returns. Chairs where we waited for something we've since forgotten to wait for. The town in the background with its forgotten name. The grass that sucks light. The black, dank earth. To reinscribe the initials of something or someone the slide was light forever. We live here, a young woman, two dogs, and me. The house is like a tower, and out from the lavish eucalyptus bird sanctuary hangs higher than our top floor, where we can see the soccer fields. In front of the tower house is a wide rock creek. The rainy season looms. It crests the river. The monster never travels this far, and you who would have wanted to save me have gone with your blue, blue eyes. Crosses. A book is also whatever else. Even days that never arrived, even graves. I say even as a synonym of including, but also to venture somewhere even farther. This photograph, too, can be at least the end of a book. It wasn't intentional, but so it is. Like the scarecrow's eye that could only see when painted. Arbitrary light blinks from the highest cross. Let's call it Pedro's grave. And let's say that the one behind it belongs to Charlie. There's no need to send flowers. Here there are, ceaselessly, wild daisies. I don't know if you would want to know this, but there's a reference there to the Wizard of Oz. Did you notice it? I didn't. I used to read the Wizard of Oz to my daughter when she was growing up. And I was impressed with that image. That the scarecrow. Oh, yes. As soon as they painted his eye, he could start to see. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Boy, no, yeah. So... Cruces, un libro 
es también cualquier cosa. Hasta días que nunca llegaron, hasta tumbas. Digo hasta como sinónimo de inclusive, pero también de llegar lejos, hasta allá. También esta fotografía puede ser al menos el final de un libro. No fue intencional, pero así será. Como el ojo del espantapájaros que mientras era pintado pudo ver. Arbitraria la luz se prende de la cruz más grande. Diremos aquí que será la tumba de Pedro y que la del fondo le pertenece a Charlie. No hay necesidad de enviar flores. Aquí, perennemente, hay margaritas silvestres. Been listening to Valerie Mayer Caso and Michelle Hill Montero read from Edinburgh Notebook. So is the title of the book, Edinburgh Notebook, referring to an actual notebook? And is this a notebook written by you or a notebook written by your brother or, um, or maybe just an imaginary notebook? Lisa, Lisa thought that it was a notebook written by my brother. But, but the thing that really happened is that the Scotland Yard sent me his suicidal note. And then I integrated it into December 5th. But the book is an actual manuscript. And every time I have written a book, it's in a book, in an actual manuscript. It's written in the order it ends up existing. And it comes with drawings and quotes and suddenly there are other. So in, the, in this book, is there's a filtration of this book now. Yes. But I think the, the question is exactly it's profound in that way and that is my it encapsulates my thinking process and I tell my daughter if 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 I die this is what you have to rescue <laughs> the yeah. piece of furniture and the where, where, where it's everything and she laughs you're not gonna die I, I will but <laughs> yeah. you have to rescue yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Valerie, for spending this couple hours with me today. David, thank you. Thank you for thinking so profoundly like a, like a rock that is submerging us and all the, all the way in. <sighs> and it really felt so personal, but thought, but intellectual, but raw. I don't know, but it's my first experience. I think it will last with me for a long time. Well, hopefully this will get Edinburgh Notebook into a lot of North American uh, English reading hands. That's good. <laughs> we'll visualize them with we them. Will. We will. And I also want to thank all the people you asked for and for a question. And I feel all these friends surrounding you. And, and thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. We were talking today to poet, painter, and translator Valerie Mayer Caso about her latest book from Action Books, Edinburgh Notebook. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. 
Today's bonus audio is a long-form conversation with Valerie's translator, Michelle Hill Montero. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Forrest Gander, Alice Oswald, Darren Negrifa, Rosemary Waldrop, Ted Chang, Ross Gay, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Emre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>